The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of, of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eliazar, and Eliazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abram to David were fourteen generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, fourteen generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, fourteen generations. This is the word of God. That was some great reading by Francis there. Thank you for that. Uh, those names are, are not easy to read at all. None of them are easy to read. Now, if you have seen uh, the bulletin for December, you would have noticed that the passage we're meant to be doing today is 1 John chapter 1. Uh, but something else some of you would know is uh, I had a baby boy uh, about uh, a month ago, and and so I went through this passage to try and find a name for a kid. I mean, listen to these names. Aminadab. Can you hear that name? Shiltiel. These are some interesting names. I came across this passage and I thought, oh, wow, we could give our kids some really brilliant names. Um, I'm sure most of you know I'm joking. Uh, our kids' names, let me tell you, well, the last one. His name is Lubabalo, which means blessing or promise. And the other name is Nubek, or which means to thrive, to progress, or to flourish. Those are some really, really great names, uh, just as the ones we have in today's passage. But, but this passage here really is uh, quite a, an interesting passage. Uh, I, I found it quite challenging preparing for it. Uh, God has really challenged me from his word as I've been going through this passage. And I hope tonight, as we go through the passage, that you yourselves will be challenged from God's word. Let me pray for us as we start. Our dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for Jesus, who is our King. A King who has come to redeem and save us and bring us into his kingdom. And a King who then commissions us with the message of his kingdom that we should take to the rest of the world. So, dear Lord, we do pray, as we meet tonight and sit under your word, that you would encourage us, that you would rebuke us, that you would correct us, so that we may walk in the ways of your kingdom. And this we do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Captain America, the first Avenger. Iron Man, Iron Man 2, the Incredible Hulk, Thor, the Avengers, the Dark World, Winter Soldier, the Guardians of the Galaxy, Age of Ultron, Ant-Man, Civil War, Black Panther, Spider-Man, Doctor Strange, Infinity War, Captain Marvel, and Game. Now can you guys guess the picture that I was painting or the picture that is painted by the, by the, the names of the movies that I've just rattled off? Anyone can say it? Can say it loud? War, something else, come on now. Superheroes, something more specific. Captain, listen to this, Captain America, the first Avenger. What, what comes to mind as you hear all these names? The Avengers, thank you. The Avengers, someone said it. The Avengers. See, I recall from earlier this year when I went to watch the movie that the movie that I'm talking about now is Endgame because it was the last one to come out, that the Avengers. And when this movie came out, I remember that when people walked out of the big, big screens, there were really two reactions to the movie. One of the reactions was people walked out unimpressed. They just thought, this was just another ordinary movie. There's, there's nothing great about this movie. But there was another group of people who walked out of there really impressed by the movie. Now, the group of people who left impressed, I'll tell you why they were impressed, because I'm among that group of people. See, I think that group of people are people who had been following the Avengers for a while. They'd watched all of the movies, and in that movie, they saw the culmination of what seemed like unrelated movies or unrelated characters coming together to form one big story. And so for them, that one big picture that was formed over a period of time was amazing. I can remember two scenes from the movie as we were watching it, two scenes where the whole theater erupted, oh, well, most of the people in the theater jumped up when those two scenes came up. One of the scenes, the Avengers, they, they looked like they were defeated. They looked like they were down and out. And Doctor Strange ushered in everyone else from the Avengers from another galaxy. And you could hear the roar in the room. Everyone was excited about seeing that coming together. And the one of the scenes that was much bigger than this one is the scene where Iron Man finally manages to take all the stones from, let me remember his name now. Thanos. Thanos. Thank you. From Thanos. And then when he's finally gotten to get all the stones, he then clicked his finger. The whole room erupted. Because years and years of putting all these pictures together finally became one. That movie, that scene was one big story that suddenly came together. And everyone walked out of there and they, they marveled. They marveled, pun intended. <laughs> now, now I, think, I think the movie world teaches a lot that we can understand about this passage that Matthew puts together today. See, I think the movie world teaches us two things. Two things, not just the movie world, but books you have read. And perhaps puzzle pieces that you've put together. They teach us two things. And this is one, the first one. It shows that you and I are not foreign to the idea of an author putting together characters that seem unrelated to form one big picture. You and I are not foreign to that. 
But what Matthew does here is he uses the genealogy of Jesus. Now, for the rest of the night, I will say family. It's a much easier word to say. He uses the family tree of Jesus to paint this picture for us. And so if you've been confused as you read this passage, just know this, that Matthew here is painting one big picture for us. Now, tell us what the one big picture is a bit later. Something else that I think the movie world teaches us is something that I've picked up from listening to other sermons uh, from, from, from this very passage. See, every time I've heard a sermon from this passage, what usually happens is the person would pick out a few characters from the passage, someone like Judah and Tamar, and point out how scandalous these people were, were and then say, look, Look at the family of Jesus. Jesus comes from a dysfunctional family, and Jesus has come to save those very people. And if Jesus has come to save these bad people, then Jesus can save you as well. I've heard the sermon going along those lines. But I think, see, that kind of sermon, I think, misses the big picture that Matthew is putting together here. It'll be like choosing one of the movies, Thor, and watching just that movie and hoping to get the whole big picture. See, if we want to get the whole big picture, to see and marvel at the big picture, we have to wrestle with how Matthew structures these names. There's a structure that Matthew gives us that helps us to understand this passage today. So, so what is this big picture that Matthew is painting for us? Well, it is this. Jesus is the promised and chosen king who invites us into God's kingdom. Jesus is the promised and chosen king who invites us into his kingdom. And as we go through the passage tonight, I have three points for us. The first point is promise. The second point is king. And the third point is grace. So let's go to our first point and read verse 1 together. Listen to what Matthew says in verse 1 of Matthew 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We'll stop there for now. I don't know if you noticed the three titles that Matthew uses to refer to Jesus. There's one title there. He says, Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is the son of Abraham. For now, we will look at just the, the last two, the son of David and son of Abraham. We'll look at those two for now. See, these titles here, these titles evoke the promises that God made to David and Abraham. So when you hear these titles, son of David and son of Abraham, what comes to mind first with David is the promise that God made to him in 2 Samuel 7. So God made a promise to David and he said to David, your kingdom will last forever. The other promise that comes to mind is from that title, Son of David, and Son of Abraham. And from this title, what the promise that comes to mind is the promise that God made to Abraham, that through Abraham, all the peoples of the world would be blessed. See, all the peoples of the world would be blessed through him. Now, there are a number of people in the Bible whom God makes a covenant with, whom he makes promises with, but there are really two figures that stand out when you read the Bible. And it is these two figures, David and Abraham. And here as Matthew uses these titles, Matthew wants us to see God's faithfulness. What Matthew wants us to see is in Jesus, God has fulfilled those promises. In Jesus, God has, has fulfilled them. And in Jesus, God is fulfilling these promises that he made to David and Abraham. That's what Matthew wants to draw attention to first. 
Now, I'll talk a bit later how God fulfills these promises. But I think it is worthwhile for us to just park the bus here for a little while and just marinate on God's faithfulness. Just marinate on the fact that God is a promise keeper. He is a promise keeper. There's a song by a lady from Nigeria, which is a very popular song. The song has blown up all over the world. The song is called Waymaker. I don't know if you've heard it. Waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper. This is what Matthew wants to draw attention to with those two titles. So one of the things he wants us to see, that this God keeps his promises. This is who our God is. He keeps our promises. He is a promise keeper. And so as you read through the verse, you will realize that how Matthew breaks up the verse is using these characters. He first breaks it up at the beginning with Abraham after he's given us the title in verse 1. And then in verse 6b, he breaks it up again, but now with David. And a bit later, we see that these promises are fulfilled in Jesus. Now, it's quite interesting that in the third section or the third paragraph there, you realize that he does not mention a character, but he mentions an event. Now, I'll come back to that event and explain why he mentions the event instead there. See, what Matthew wants to draw attention to here is God is a promise keeper. God keeps his promises. But now, to verse 12 that I just mentioned. See, verse 12, you'd expect in verse 12 that Matthew would give you another character after he's given you David, after he's given you Abraham and David. But he doesn't. He gives you an event. Let's read verse 12 together. He says, and after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah. So why does he do that? Why does he give us an event there instead of continuing with how he has started? So one of the reasons why Matthew wants, is doing that there is to show that at this very time, this would have been the time where the people would have been doubting whether God is faithful, whether God keeps his promises. Now, now not to blow my own horn, uh, a bit earlier in the year I preached a series on Haggai. I would really encourage you to go listen to it. In this series I explain what happened before the exile, what happened during the exile and after the exile. But, but, but here's the big thing. God's people, God had been faithful to them, but they were unfaithful. And so they were uprooted during the exile and deported to Babylon. Some of them remained in the land, but all of them were under Babylonian captivity. See, at that moment, all of God's people would have wondered, God, what happened to your promises to David? What happened to your promises to Abraham? Are you no longer faithful? Have you forgotten to keep your promises? This is one of the things that would have been going in the mind of God's people. Even at this time, when Jesus would have entered the scene. And so what Matthew wants them to see, what Matthew wants these Jewish people to see, and what he wants us to see tonight, is that God is faithful to his promises. God keeps his promises. See, the promises that were made to Abraham and David, God has kept them in Jesus. This God keeps his promises. God is faithful to his promises because he can never change. And actually, God cannot change. He cannot be anything other than what he is. And God is faithful. He doesn't change. He's a promise keeper. One of the preachers from one of the churches I used to go to used to give a statement that was quite redundant. He used to say, God is consistently constant. And what he wanted you to get from that is the weightiness of God's faithfulness. That God is consistently, consistently constant. 
He keeps his promises. He never changes. He is a promise keeper. Now I know you and I cannot conceive of anyone or any person or being who always keeps their promises. We cannot conceive of anyone who's constant who always keeps their promises. Because you and I don't keep our promises. You and I break our promises. And sometimes it's not because we intentionally want to hurt the person. Sometimes it's not just because we, we're bad people. The reason sometimes we don't keep our promises is because we do not have the power or ability to perform those promises we've made. And so there's a phrase that you probably regularly heard that someone says after they feel like their promise that was made has been broken. And this is the phrase, but she promised. You promised you'd take out the trash. You promised that you'd not hurt me again. You promised that you'd look after me. These are words that you and I have probably heard or we have said to someone else. And so you and I cannot conceive of a being that always keeps his promises. One commentator, actually, when he talks about our inability and unwillingness to keep our promises, says this, that us breaking our promises looks like dangling a carrot in front of a donkey. See, the, 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 the donkey can see the carrot. He walks towards it, but he's never going to get it. The other way he explains it is breaking our promises is like casting a hook out with a worm to catch a fish. And then you reel it in. But the fish never actually gets the worm. The fish gets hurt from the broken promises. And you see, I think because you and I have been hurt or we've hurt others by not keeping our promises or when they have not kept their promises to us, we cannot conceive of a being who always keeps his promises. And Matthew here, as he starts us off, wants us to see that. That this God keeps his promises. He is consistently constant. Now, as I look around the room, I'm sure there are two groups of people here. Maybe there's one group who says, intellectually, I cannot believe Christianity. I cannot believe that it is true. It, it seems too good to be true. It seems too, too good to, to be true to hear that there's a being who always keeps his promises. This just seems too good to be true. So intellectually, I don't think I can believe in Christianity. Is it true? Is Christmas true? Is this whole Jesus thing true? Maybe there's that one group here tonight. But I'm quite sure there's another group who says, this time of the year for them is a reminder of all the broken promises. It's a reminder of the broken promises a spouse or the significant other failed to keep. And so you're spending Christmas alone. Promises that a parent failed to keep, either through a divorce or a parent that just decided to up and leave. Or this time of the year for you is a reminder of the broken families and the broken society that we have. And so as you think about Christianity, you, you sit here and think, I can hear what you're saying. I can, believe, I can believe in my head what you're saying about this God. But emotionally, I'm spent. Emotionally, I'm spent. I don't think I can commit to this God. My experiences have taught me to not trust anyone, including God. Well, Matthew is good news for us here today. And the good news is there is a being who is able to keep his promises. You, you can put your life on, on what God has said because God always keeps his promises. And in Jesus, God has ultimately proven that he is trustworthy. See, God is not a man that he should lie or, or not keep his promises. 
See, God's faithfulness means that God will always do what he said and fulfill what he has promised. That's the first thing that Matthew wants us to see, that this God is a promise-keeping God. Now, here's our second point as we move along. The second thing that Matthew wants us to see, still in verse 1 from those very titles, the second thing he wants us to see is this second point, king. He wants us to see that Jesus is the king. So let's go back and read verse 1. The book of the family tree of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. See, the two other titles, I said there were three titles there. There's the first one I did not mention, which is the Christ. That title there means anointed one, a chosen one. But perhaps you have heard it as being referred to as Messiah. When Matthew mentions that Jesus is the Christ, he's saying Jesus is the Messiah. And the other title that he uses there, Son of David, he's saying Jesus is a king in the line of David. Now, Isaiah 22 is a great passage that brings the Christ and Son of David together. Let me read Isaiah 22 for us. Let me read Isaiah 22 for us. Isaiah 22, verse 22. You do not need to turn to the passage. I'll read it for us. Isaiah 22, verse 22 reads as follows. And I will place on his shoulder, this is the Messiah, the key of the house of David. He shall open and and none shall shut. You see here, Isaiah puts these two titles together for us to point out that the Messiah is the son of David. And Matthew here wants us to see that this Jesus he's going to tell us about is the king. Jesus is, Jesus is God's chosen and promised king. The king whom we are told about in 2 Samuel 7, that his kingdom would last forever. But you see, before we talk about the kind of king Jesus is and how his kingdom looks like, I think the first thing you and I have got to realize, the first thing we've got to sit and think about, is that if Jesus is king, then all of life is about him. If Jesus is king, all of life is about him. He is the centerpiece and the focal point of human history. Everything revolves around him. Everything around him. He is king. Now I think you and I know a lot about centerpieces. Usually when you walk into a home and you walk into the living room, you'll often see the flat screen TV there. And the flat screen TV dominates the whole living room. It is there as the centerpiece of that living room. If you grew up with with a wall unit uh, in your home, perhaps you'd remember that the wall unit right in the middle would have the space for the TV. The TV was the centerpiece of the whole living room. But there's another centerpiece that you and I can think of, that especially married men can think about. See, the wedding day. On the wedding day, the centerpiece is the bride. She, she, is, the, she is the centerpiece of that day. Actually, as the groom, I don't think any, anyone actually cares about how you look like. You could come wearing shorts, and I doubt anyone would notice. The centerpiece of that very day is the bride. Now, I hope you've noticed. I've not said the centerpiece of the marriage, but I've said the wedding day. David gave a brilliant sermon on marriage this morning. I'd encourage you to go and look it up on our website. But the centerpiece of that wedding day is the bride. When she walks in, everyone stands 
with undivided attention, well, with their phones out, but with undivided attention, they turned their attention towards her to take pictures of her because she is the centerpiece of that very evening. Dun, 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 dun. Everyone turns and looks at her. The song that we'll be playing, if you're from Limpopo, will be Haka Matorokisi. My Malibobo people will love you. But the centerpiece of that very day will be the bride. You and I know very, we know a lot about centerpieces. And what Matthew wants us to see here is Jesus as king is the centerpiece of all of life. You and I are not the centerpiece of all of, of, all of life. You and, I, you and I are not the purpose of life. My life and your life is not about us. Our lives are about King Jesus. He's the centerpiece of all of human history. Rick Warren, in his best-selling book called Purpose Driven Life, a brilliant book. It is a really brilliant book. Love the book. This is a book that a number of people have bought, trying to figure out, trying to find out what is the meaning of life, what is the purpose of life. And a number of people, whether they're Christians or not, they've read this book. People like Michael Phelps, who was not a Christian, and he read the book and became a Christian. Now, now, when you read the book, how do you guys think Rick Warren would start the book? If you're going to talk about the purpose of life, how do you think he starts the book? Let me tell you. The first sentence is, it's not about you. Now I know most of us at that moment would be tempted to close the book and find a different book you can read. But his point is quite clear. The purpose of life is not you or me. The purpose of life is this King Jesus. Life is about him. Everything revolves around him. Now Kanye West, who has come up with, uh, with an album called Jesus is King. This is something that has suddenly dawned on his life, I think, from just what I'm seeing from his life. This is something that has suddenly dawned on his life. So in one of his songs called Closed on Sunday, you're my Chick-fil-A. <laughs> this is what he says. I bow down to the king upon the throne. My life is his. I'm no longer my own. You and I were never our own from the beginning. If Jesus is king, then all of life is about him. Christmas is about him. He is the centerpiece of all of life. You see, Matthew then from verse 18 all the way up to chapter 10 then tells us what kind of king Jesus is. See, in chapters 1 to 4, he tells us about Jesus the person. And he tells us about Jesus' teaching or principles from chapter 5. To chapter 7. And from chapter 8 to chapter 10, he tells us about Jesus' power. And in chapter 13, he tells us about the kingdom of heaven, how the kingdom of heaven looks like. Now, if we were to go through all those passages, we would be here the whole night. So I'm not going to do that. Rather, what I would do is share a poem with you from a man called Dr. Shadrach Lockridge. You perhaps have heard this poem, we've played it a number of times in our services at the church. The poem is called, That's My King. See, that poem clearly or gives us a great summary of what Matthew wants us to see about this King Jesus. This is how the poem goes. I'll try to give it as much life as he gives it. He says this, referring to King Jesus. His life is matchless. His goodness is limited. 
His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy. And his burden is light. Well, I wish I could describe him to you. But he is indescribable. Yes, he is incomprehensible. You can't outlive him. And you can't live without him. He's, he's the only one who's able to supply all of our needs. He supplies strength to the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He guards and he guides. He heals. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. That's my king. And you see, Matthew wants us to see this king. This king, Jesus, this promised savior, who is gracious, who is good, who is forgiving, who has come to establish his kingdom by redeeming those who are living in darkness. This is what Matthew wants us to see. And so in verse 12, when he says, he has come, rather in verse 21, which you do not have, when he says, Jesus has come to save his people, referring to his name. Let me read it for us. Verse 21 reads as follows. He will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. What Matthew wants us to see is that this good, gracious king has come to save his people. And now by his people, this is not exclusive to Jewish people. It's not exclusive to Jewish people. By his people, he is referring to people from every nation, from every, tongue, from every, from every tribe, tongue, and every language. This is what he wants us to see. And we can see this clearly from that title again in verse 1. The son of Abraham. See, the promise was that through Abraham, the whole world would be blessed. Through Abraham, people who were far off from God, people from every nation, would come to live under the kingdom of God. And so when we see names like Rahab, who was not initially part of God's people, and Ruth being engrafted into God's people, we are meant to see this how this son of Abraham has come to bring people who are far off from God closer to God. See, this gracious king invites us. He invites people from every tribe to come into his kingdom. That's the kind of king he is. Now, I'll tell you that as you, as you read literature, you'll pick up that our world longs for this kind of king. If you've picked up anything about Robin Hood, you would see that our world longs for a kind of king that is like this. If you read anything that's related to King Arthur, you'll see this. J.R.R. Tolkien, his her series on the Lord of the Rings, her, his series on the Lord of the Rings, one of the, one of the big things, the main thing that holds the whole thing together there is that there is a true king in the north who will come to bring and make things right. See, as you look at our world, you can tell that our world longs for a king like this. A king who who could come to heal, to cleanse the lepers, and to forgive sinners. A gracious king. I think it's one of the reasons we look at our politicians. And you and I are grieved at the kind of leaders that they are. It's because we long for the kind of king who would be like this. And so as we read this passage... Our attention should not immediately go to the dysfunctional characters that are part of Jesus' family. You and I should be drawn to this Jesus, this King Jesus who has come to redeem his people. See, Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is the true king. 
That's our second point. Our third point. We won't be too long on this point. See, as you read through this passage, I think one of the things that really stick out for you, one of the things that strike you, is that all of the characters here, all of them, not just the scandalous ones, all of them do not match up to King Jesus. See, all of them need to be redeemed by him. And here's my, my fear when we focus on these certain characters that we think are scandalous. I think what happens is you and I lose our sight of what sin is when we do that. One, one commentator actually puts it like this. He says, we tend to miss the fact that before sin, that before sin is ever committed. Let me read that again. We tend to miss the fact that before sin ever becomes an action, it is a condition. The problem is not merely external, it is internal. The poison of sin has darkened all of our hearts, all of the characters here, and all of us tonight. See, sin is the ultimate disease, the grand psychosis. You cannot escape it, and you cannot defeat it on your own. Our deepest problem is not experiential, or biological, or relational. It is moral. And it alters everything. It distorts our identity, alters our perspective, details of our behavior, and kidnaps our hope. See, when we focus on these few characters, we miss that. We miss that all of us have been tainted by sin. All of us have, 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 have had our hearts darkened by sin and need Jesus to come in and shine his light of the gospel in our lives. Dear Carson says this, If God had perceived that our greatest problem was economic, he would have sent an economist. If God had perceived that our greatest problem was entertainment, he would have sent a comedian or artist. If God had perceived that our greatest problem was political instability, he would have sent us a politician. If God had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But God perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, our death. And so he sent us a savior. See, this is the good news that comes from this passage. That everyone who has been tainted by sin, who has had their hearts darkened by sin, there's a Savior who has come to shine his light of the gospel in our hearts. This is what Matthew wants us to see. See, the gospel is good news. It's good news, not good advice. It's good news. And this is what you and I are meant to see. That God in his grace has decided to save us. And bring us into his kingdom. But not only to save us and bring us into his kingdom. But to also use us in his story to save the rest of the world. See, as you and I look at these characters here that we think are scandalous. What should come to mind is this. That God uses crooked sticks to draw straight lines. God uses crooked sticks. Even like Rahab like Ruth, like Abraham, like Judah, like Joseph, like Mary, like Reggie, like Martin, like Kate, like Humuzo, to draw straight lines. Paul Washer, who is perhaps one of my favorite preachers, says this to help us understand this. He says, there's no such thing as a great man of God. Only weak, pitiful, and faithless men 
of a great and merciful God. Our attention as we read this passage should be directed to him, this merciful God who has been able to use even the characters that are here for the sake of his kingdom in order to bring about his redemptive story. See, all of God's giants have been weak men and women who have gotten hold of God's faithfulness. They've gotten hold of the fact that God is faithful and God has used them for the sake of his kingdom. And so over this Christmas period, as you sit with your friends and family, and perhaps reflect on the year, and at that moment think about sharing the, the gospel with them, but perhaps as you, as you reflect about the year, think about how you've not been a good Christian, and then perhaps get tempted to, to, to be a coward or, or feel the guilt to not share the gospel with them. Hear this. Listen to this message. God uses crooked sticks to draw straight lines. God was able to use even the characters that are here for the sake of his kingdom. And God can use even you and me for the sake of his kingdom. See, that's what Matthew wants us to see. That this Jesus, who is God's promised king, has shown us his grace in saving us. But not only in saving us, but in using us for the sake of his kingdom. So that we would take his gospel as Matthew 28 says, to the rest of the world. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, I do pray that as we come to your word, that as we move towards the Christmas period, that we would be in awe, that we would marvel at how you have used different characters, how you've used different events in all of history, to bring about your promises, to fulfill all of the prophecies that are in the Old Testament through Jesus Christ. And that, dear Lord, through this Jesus, you have shown that you are a promise keeper. You have shown to keep your promises, to save, to send a king who would one day sit on David's throne, a king who would invite the rest of the world to join in in the blessing you gave to Abraham. So dear Lord, as we move about life and make our way towards the Christmas period, would you help us to see this? That just as you use these different characters, through Jesus, you can do the same through us. In Jesus' name we've prayed. Amen.